I'm here with uh, Eric Seibert, and Eric has uh, just written a book. Eric, what what uh, what is the name of your book, and tell us why why you uh, decided to write it. Well, thanks, Paul. I'm glad to be here. The book is titled Disarming the Church, uh, Why Christians Must Forsake Violence to Follow Jesus and Change the World. And I wrote the book um, because I was dismayed by how uh, much the church tends to be accommodating towards violence and how much Christians uh, tend to participate in violence and wanted to um, offer um, a reading of the Gospels that demonstrates that this is really incompatible with Christian faith uh, to encourage people to think about rejecting violence completely and finding other ways to resolve conflict and uh, challenge oppression and, and injustice. And I also uh, was concerned that even some people who are part of peace church traditions that grow up hearing about the message of nonviolence um, tend to not exactly know what that looks like on the ground. So they might know yes, we're supposed to love our enemies, or yes, we're supposed to forgive people, but how does that actually work itself out in the in the daily grind of day-to-day life? So I wanted to encourage folks um, in that regard as well. And uh, I've just, uh, I'm just finishing the book, and it is one of the most comprehensive. Usually people are not so ambitious, but it seems like you've covered the entire spectrum from uh, I, I like the way that you begin, and that is that you're not simply addressing uh, the idea of peaceableness in Scripture, but you begin the book uh, just talking about uh, nonviolence in, in general. Um, can you can you say a bit about that? That our usual attitude toward the necessity of violence and the mistaken understanding underlying that. Sure. Um, I mean, I th- I think a lot of people um, assume in a lot of situations that there are sort of only two options that you either, um, you know, you do, you do nothing in certain situations or you use violence and they're, they're the only options. I, I think there's a whole host of other options in between those two creative nonviolent um, strategies that people can engage in. And so I wanted I wanted folks to be aware of what some of those were and what those what those might look like. Um, I I tend to think um, the gospel calls us to live nonviolently in all areas of our lives. Sometimes we compartmentalize it. People may think, well, it's just about being against war, but you know there are other ways, whether it may be capital punishment or self defense, where people feel like violence is appropriate. And I I think the gospel message is more comprehensive than that. That in all areas, as we follow Jesus, we want to find ways to live out our convictions that don't involve um, harming others. Uh, by using violence. So I, I, I tried to write something that was sort of all embracing in both the small areas of life and even the bigger areas of life as well. That would, that would be true to that conviction. Maybe I should have in uh, introducing you <clears throat> explain a little bit, the context that, of the church and the, uh, the college here at Messiah college. Can you explain a bit of the, the background there and, and how you, uh, why you are pursuing this in the uh, in the context in which you're pursuing it? Sure, I um I do teach at Messiah College. Uh, I'm professor of Old Testament here, and I I attend the the Grantham Brethren in Christ Church, which is literally just across the railroad track. So these are very close geographically. Um, the, the church, the Brethren in Christ Church, and the college have a relationship. They call it a covenant relationship, um, and part of the theology of the church is. Um, Anabaptism is one of several streams, three streams that make up the Brethren in Christ Church. And uh, Anabaptism, of course, has a strong commitment to to peace and nonviolence. So so here at Messiah, um, peace is a privileged position that we have at the college. Um, so it's very much part of um, the world in which I, I live and work. Um, and I'm glad that I'm at places like that where um, we do try to take peacemaking and reconciliation very seriously. Um. Just for, uh, uh, you've written, uh, how many books have you written on on this topic? Well, the, my previous two books were both related to the Old Testament and dealing with violence in the Old Testament. So I wrote one called Disturbing Divine Behavior that was really looking at some of the problematic portrayals of God that we encounter in, in Old Testament texts, um, whether that be uh, wiping out virtually all humanity in the worldwide flood or commanding Israel to completely annihilate 
Canaanites uh, to commit genocide. Um, those are troubling texts to many readers. Uh, so that book worked at that, tried to work at that issue. And then um, the next book, Violence and the violence of scripture uh, looked more, a little bit more broadly at um, other passages in the Old Testament where violence seems to be sanctioned or sometimes even celebrated. Um, so, for example, in the story like David and Goliath, where we tend to think what David did to Goliath is a good thing. That's often how it's portrayed in, you know, in Sunday school lessons and in church. Um, I would take issue with that and say, well, a story about a boy who slings a stone at a man and then cuts off his head that's probably not the kind of story that i want my son to to look at as a model for how he should live and so what do we do with texts like that they're in the bible we want to find constructive ways to read them but we don't want to promote the violent values that that a text like that might um, seem to suggest and so uh what is your explanation isn't god portrayed as violent in the old testament um Certainly, God is portrayed as violent in the Old Testament. Um, there are numerous passages that um, will demonstrate sometimes God doing um, unilateral acts of violence. I mean, we think about the paradigmatic story of Sodom and Gomorrah, where cities are you know, completely destroyed with very few survivors. And certainly other passages, um, like Canaanite genocide I just mentioned, where God is commanding people to... Um, to go wipe out whole cities. So I certainly don't deny that that texts portray God in that way. Um, I think the question is, is that are those portrayals of God um, representative of what God is actually like? Um, I think that's the issue. And so I assume that you would give precedence to uh, a New Testament understanding or a kind of Christocentric reading uh, in which the fullness of God is revealed in Christ. That's correct. I mean, that is sort of my, that's sort of where I end up. Like in Disturbing Divine Behavior, I, it's chapter 10 of the book, so it takes me a while to get there. Um, I think there are a lot of um, ways of understanding what's happening in the Old Testament in terms of people writing about God as a warrior in ways that would have been very common in those days. Um, you know, all cultures envision God and the gods behaving in that way. Um, so it makes sense that Israel would think that way as well. Um, but but if we're going to look at those portrayals and ask the question, does this accurately represent what God is really like? I do think um, at the end of the day, we need to look to Jesus. I, I believe Jesus is the, is the clearest and fullest revelation of the moral character of God. And so by, by looking at Jesus, we can kind of use Jesus as our standard for who God is and, and what God's character is like, and we can use that to evaluate um, portrayals of God um, in the Old Testament. Uh, and, of course, the, the thing that you do in the book um, is that you, you take passages, problem passages, uh, that, uh, you know, the, the issue of the swords, the, the Jesus in the temple— well, let's just uh, let's do one of those. Uh, for example, when Jesus says uh, to the disciples, "Well, you know, uh, go and buy a, a, a sword." How, how do you handle that passage? Right. So there's that you know, that passage about you know purchasing uh, two, two purchasing swords if they don't have them, and um, there's a number of other instructions that Jesus is giving uh, the disciples. Um, there's a passage that comes prior to that one, again, where Jesus is in, es in essence saying, you know, you don't have a, you know, you can simply go out um, without having, I think it's a purse and some other items that, that you might typically think about needing for traveling because the disciples are simply to rely on the hospitality of the places to which they go. Um, but now this is a later passage and it's in Luke 22 and Jesus is, is in essence telling them that they, now they need to get these things that they didn't need to have before. Um, and the disciples seem to take this very literally, um, because when Jesus mentions about swords, um, two swords are produced, at which point Jesus um, says, is typically translated, it is enough. Um, now, again, I think there are different ways of hearing that. Um, it could be a sort of a, a tone of exasperation. Um, and a very similar expression is found in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, where Moses has been asking God to enter the promised land. He asks three times, and, and God uses a 
very similar expression, which is sort of enough of this, no more of this. And so at one point you might see Jesus sort of shaking his head. It's like after all that Jesus has taught them about loving enemies and doing unto others as you'd have them do unto you, they still think Jesus is talking about literal swords here. So I think one way to read this would be to hear Jesus speaking more metaphorically. And what he's saying here is that this is just before he's this is just before he's going to be betrayed, um, and he's saying the time the time is different now. You know, before you could move about freely and rely upon the hospitality of others, but things are changing. Times are going to be different now. Uh, we're entering a new uh, a new era, um, and you need to be you need to be prepared and to realize that the dangers await. So he's not actually asking them to arm themselves literally. Um, I think that's confirmed also by the very end of the chapter where you know. Peter pulls out the sword when Jesus is arrested and slices off the high priest's slave's ear. And Jesus, you know, says, you know, no more of this. Put that, put that back um, and actually heals the, heals the slave. So I don't, I don't think we're to read these as mm-hmm. Jesus wanting people to have physical swords to use in a violent kind of way. And it's almost, I, I've never looked at the Greek, but in your description, the enough of this that he may be saying when uh, when they're uh, with the swords prior to that, and then the enough of this that he says to Peter, having it, it sounds like a very similar uh, phrase that he's saying, no, no more of this sort of thing. Yeah, and one, and I'm not sure if it's in the. I think it's in in Matthew's version of the story. And it talks about you know those who you know those who take up the sword will die by the sword. Um, so it's again, it's a very it seems to me a pretty clear rejection of any kind of of uh, use of physical violence. You know, it's, and it's been said um, uh, and this I I heard from someone else, um, and it makes a lot of sense to me that if you know if if there were ever a moment in which you might think violence could be justified, it would seem to have been that one. You've been traveling around mm-hmm. with Jesus and seeing Jesus do miracles. I mean, feed people, heal people bring people back to life. If you would ever think that this is someone worth defending with violence, it would seem to be, you know, Jesus at that moment. But yet at that very moment, Jesus says, this is not, this is not the way of the kingdom. Um, you know, put that away. Jesus is about, about healing and helping, not, not harming others. Let me ask you a kind of broad question. And so I think that uh, you would equate, uh, would you equate sin and violence? I, I mean, I, I think that um, engaging in acts of violence um, are sinful acts. I, th- I think where this gets tricky is defining what violence is, because <laughs> how, how broadly or how narrowly you construe that, um, I think will make some people more or less comfortable with talking about violence as, as being sinful. I mean, there's certainly some clear acts of violence that we would all, you know, all agree are are bad and, and against uh, God's good, mm-hmm. good purposes for us. I think there are others where, you know, people are, may not consider certain acts violent and they might want to debate, debate that point. Um, right. The, my, my own work uh, is in, you know, if you look at chapter seven uh, and some people would even consider that, that, uh, and I'm, uh, I think I'm in, in agreement with here. The, the vocabulary or the, the semantics of it may not be important. But in a sense, the struggle that is internal to us, the kind of agonistic struggle that, you know, we are pitted against ourselves, that I do what I don't want to do, that there may be a kind of inherent antagonism giving rise to violence or that we might even equate with violence that is simply at the root of uh, what we call sin. Uh, whether you want to equate those may be just a matter of semantics. The, the, let, me, let me ask you then, um, you're in the, at Messiah College and in your, in your own tradition, uh, that you, you have a view of the church that is certainly not the typical Amish you know, uh, idea of a kind of withdrawal. But what you're describing is not simply, oh, we'll go and be peaceable unto ourselves, but you're describing a kind of aggressive peacemaking. And I'm I'm wondering what your picture of the relationship uh, is between the church and culture that gives rise to that. 
Yes, I do think um, the church should be, you know, to use a gospel phrase, salt and light. Uh, so I think we are to be engaged in, you know, promoting and advancing the kingdom of God, which is a, is in my understanding, a kingdom of of peace and a kingdom of justice for all people. And so that's gonna in, that's gonna involve um, getting out into the world and finding those broken spaces, uh, looking at places where people are being oppressed, where there's injustice that's, t- that's happening, and engaging those things actively um, and intentionally um, because because that's the work that God is doing in the world. And so as agents, you know, as agents of, of, of the kingdom of God, we want to be um, working to make changes that can help people who find themselves um, in those kinds of settings. So I, to me, a, a, a model withdrawal, um, while, while a certain witness, countercultural witness that I, that I can respect is to me not, not going far enough. We need to be doing more to actually um, bring about um, change uh, as, as agents of the gospel of peace. You know, one of the things that I really enjoyed about your book is that you use stories throughout the book. Uh, and uh, I was wondering if you could tell us that, that the very opening of the book is quite striking. Uh, do you, the, the story that uh, the, little, the little narrative uh, that you introduced the book that kind of gets, I think, at uh, that the, even if violence is is not uh in some way pragmatically the the justifiable in that story i think hits that well that we're called nonetheless to peacemaking yeah no i think it's i mean it's an intriguing story um it's you know from a book called benediction it's a novel written by uh kent haroff i think that's the one you're referring to uh uh, maybe (laughs) Um, and that in, the, in that story, I mean, it's it's a it's a story of a of a pastor who he's a his name is Rob Lyle. He's a minister that arrived in uh, Colorado, and he's he's preaching uh, on a summer day from the text in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, you know, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, and so on. And um, it, as the story goes, he begins his message, you know, telling people in his congregation that you know a lot of people. Um, you know, think this is a you know a nice idea. It's it's you know interesting to to reflect upon. It would be great if you know we could, the world would be that way. But it's not 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 really very realistic to to live that out in the real world. But then he kind of changes gears and and begins to explore the possibility. Of what if Jesus you know really meant what he said? And and he takes it even more in a bit more of a nationalistic kind of way and saying, what if we as a, we as a America would take this to heart and decide to really love our enemies instead of you know, sending bombs, but if we were to send food and you know, to help um, people in other places, you know, what would that look like? And he's, he's only partway through his sermon and the congregation kind of splits and people begin yelling things um, back at him and um, are not happy about what he's doing. And the service kind of comes to a, to an end before it was planned to just again, I think highlighting how difficult this message of living nonviolently is, particularly in, in an American context. Um, we, we seem to be so uh, committed to using violence that it's hard to hear, hear this, even within the context of the church where the, where this message should be most, most well received. Uh, maybe I'm remembering the story wrong, or I'm mixing two stories. Uh, that the uh, then they go out, and his own wife. In other words, people get angry; they start yep. yelling at him in yes. church. Uh, and uh, then his own wife says, "Well, you've really ruined it now, yes. haven't you?" That's right. And. No, that's Go right. Ahead. I mean, I, I'm just I'm looking at it here in the book, and the end is she says, "You ruined this too, haven't you? What did you think people would do? Did you actually think they'd agree with you? Be convinced by your eloquence and passion, my God?" And he says, "No, no, I didn't think that. I had to say it anyway." And she responds, "Why? For what earthly reason?" And his response is, "Because I believe it." Um, so he, he he. And then who is the who is the, the boy? boy? Um, his name is John Wesley. Um, 
not to be confused with John Wesley long ago, um, but his son um, sort of leaves in a huff and takes off for home, um, not not happy about what his dad has done um, in church. So clearly there's you know, division even within his own family about, uh, about this message. Which seems to be the, when Jesus says, I come not to bring peace, but yes. a sword, uh, there is the prime illustration of how divisive the gospel yes. is. Yes, yes, the gospel is, I mean, it is, dis- it can, it is disruptive in, in those kinds of settings when someone feels they compelled by its message and are committed to living it out, um, it, it challenges the status quo and people systems, family systems, and other systems are uncomfortable with that. Which may be the, the, one of the big points that you make in your book, and that is why the church accepts and participates in so much violence. In other words, why do Christians think this is okay? I think that's a really important question to ask. Um, and I think there are a number, a number of reasons for that. Part of it has to do with the fact that in many church traditions, they they simply have never heard a clear and compelling message that Jesus calls us to live nonviolently. That that just hasn't sort of been on on their radar screen. It hasn't been a message that's been promoted. I think that's a piece of it. I think another part of it is that people, particularly in um, you know in North America, grow up. Um, in a culture that is very um, enamored with with war and with violence, uh, that these are the ways that we're taught certain kinds of problems are solved. Um, through our educational system, we learn about battles and wars. We don't learn a whole lot about peacemakers um, and the peace process. So I think for many people, they are simply unaware of all the alternatives to violence that are available. They haven't perhaps heard the stories um, that show there is another way possible. So I think that's, I think that's another reason um, as well. Part of, you know, your description that, that strikes me and, and it, it, I, uh, as I'm hearing you say this, it kind of, I'm, th- I'm judging my own self that you're very ironic in your understanding of people and churches, and you use the language of churches and Christians. In other words, you you seem not to hesitate to apply and say, well, yes, here's the church. But in other words, uh, what I'm hearing you say in this, not you've exactly articulated, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that it may be that some Christians uh, have not arrived at this understanding of the gospel but nonetheless, that does not exclude them uh, from uh, the, the church, and and uh, that that this is a that we're in process. Yes, no, I absolutely agree with that, and I want to be, I'd want to be very careful that um, I wouldn't come across, uh, you know, saying, well, someone, you know, is engaged in this particular form of violence that then they can't be a Christian. That would not be my position. You know, so certainly I, I don't think um, warfare is, um, is something that Jesus calls us to be engaged in, but I recognize that there are um, lots of very good, godly, sincere Christians who are in the military, and I think that's, I think that's important. Um, I think for me, where I try to nuance this and the way that I try to push this is I, I think the way I understand the message of Jesus is that if we want to follow the nonviolent way of Jesus fully, there are certain things that are simply incompatible with that call. Um, and so I would argue that, um, you know, going to war would be, would be one of those. And that if you, that if you're, you're engaged in that, then at that point, in that particular aspect of your Christian walk, you're not fully following the nonviolent way of Jesus. Um, just like someone might look at my life and say, well, you know, in the way you spend your money, you know, you're not fully following the way of Jesus over here. And there are certainly areas that I'm sure I, I need to work on as well. So, yeah, I want to be careful um, about how I would talk about that. And so at the same time, you're being very ironic. Uh, you're also saying that to be a faithful disciple of Jesus 
you have to embrace nonviolence. Yes, I do think, I think to be, a, I guess I would say to be a fully faithful disciple of Jesus, you have to embrace nonviolence. That's true. I, I do think that is what Jesus calls us to. And I just, I feel like the the command, especially to love enemies, again, to treat others as we want to be treated, those are sort of inescapable um, and difficult commands. But but that is at the heart of what it means to be, to be the people of God. Um, and so, it, it, in a sense, it's not just um, this to be a disciple uh, is to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, that is, that what we're involved in is a present tense, uh, you know, establishment. Is that the way you're thinking of this? That this salvific kingdom of which we are participants uh, is one then that depends upon, uh, not simply depends upon, but our own salvation is one that we can only enjoy peace, joy, long-suffering, patience, uh, the love of God as we walk as Christ walked. Yes, I I do think um, discipleship is 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 something that is an ongoing way of living. I mean, I think the call to follow again is a is a call to a to a way of life. Um, and certainly, there are I think there are moments and entry points that people have. We talk about that in you know variety different ways. People talk about you know being saved or conversion. I think those are very important moments in in, in faith, some, many people's faith journey. Um, but that's simply, you know, a point in the, in a much larger process. And that uh, if we, when we decide to follow Jesus, then that has all sorts of implications for how we you know, treat our family members, how we treat our coworkers, um, how we think about, um, our other countries in relation to ours. Um, it, it just impacts all of those kinds of things. So the, uh, salvation, as you're describing it, is both. It is something instituted, inaugurated in, in and through Christ uh, and the church. I'm wondering, you know, in the I've, I've run into this. I, you, you've yes. met Richard Hughes, and I guess Richard was there at Messiah for a while. He was. We had the good fortune of having Richard Hughes here for, I think it was seven years he was here. And I got to know him uh, during his time here and just was very much grateful for his, his deep commitment to peace and nonviolence. And the thing that uh, I, in discussing with him, uh, I'm wondering how you would relate the, uh, the church and the kingdom. Are they synonymous? Is the church a manifestation of the kingdom? Is the kingdom completely identical with the church? My understanding of the of the kingdom of God, as Jesus speaks about in the Gospels, is sort of, I guess I would see that as the broadest umbrella. That is, I, I understand the kingdom of God to be God's reign of peace and justice over all the, all the earth. Um, and that that is something that um, anyone can participate in. Um, you know, I think, again, we're... Uh, People who are hungry are being fed. You know, there is the kingdom. I think where people who are uh, being oppressed are liberated again, there is the kingdom. I think where you know people who are in conflict who can find ways to resolve that without violence, there is the kingdom. So I think the kingdom is is very broad in that sense, um, and that God wants you know to 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 set things right as it sometimes as justice is sometimes defined um, for all people. I do think the church. Um, participates in that kingdom uh, and has a very special role to play in it in advancing and promoting that kingdom um, and it, on its best days it does a it does a, a fantastic job of doing that there are lots of um, examples that we see the church again advancing and promoting that kingdom um, but I think that I don't I wouldn't equate the kingdom of God with with the church I think the kingdom of God is is sort of the grand the grand plan a much broader again a much broader kind of umbrella and that the church has a very important role in participating in and advancing that kingdom. And then what would be the identifying marker of the kingdom? Well, I think um, part of part of the markers of the kingdom um, in terms of how people would live out their lives would be things like I would talk about um, kingdom, the, the 
kingdom people, if we can use that kind of expression, I mean, it's where people will serve others rather than dominate them. Um, expressions of the kingdom or markers of the kingdom are where people, you know, forgive rather than retaliate. Um, kingdom, and you know, Greg Boyd has talked, uh, written about this, talked about this. You know, kingdom, um, the kingdom of God is where you, you know, you sort of use power under rather than power over. Again, the, the, the idea of ser- serving rather than dominating. Again, that that notion. I think we see the kingdom where people are willing to suffer harm um, for what's right rather than to inflict harm on others. Um, I think, and I think at the heart of it, you know, the, the kingdom is where where you see love prevailing over, you know, h- hate. So all those kinds of things are are expressions of what the kingdom of God looks like. Um, maybe this is not directly pertinent, but it, it does raise the issue of then is this kingdom ultimately embracing all peoples? Uh, in a, I mean, in a, in a one sense, you can talk about a universal salvation that all peoples are brought into this kingdom so that in the end, there is no category, uh, in the, in God's plan, uh, into the future that is not embraced by the kingdom. I, I do think that, I mean, I do think that God wants for all people um, to experience wholeness and wellness in, in the broadest sense, that things are, that people have their basic needs met, that people are in right relationships with each other, that people are in, are in right relationship with God. And so I think that vision of the kingdom is something that extends, um, again, beyond the church. And that's that's God's desire for for all humanity. And that's, I mean, that's part of what I think is exciting to be part of the church, to be, to be working with God in, in that way. And that's one of the things that in, in your book, then you you describe peacemaking situations. I wonder if you might tell a few of those stories, not just of, uh, in uh, a Christian context, but even in a Muslim, uh, in Islamic countries uh, where the same strategies, the same understanding has taken, taken hold and been effective. Um, yeah, I think I might've missed just a little bit of that question. Could you just repeat that one again? So that in the, in your picture of the kingdom in the book, you're well, part of what you're doing is describing uh, in other outside of a Western Christian context that in uh in dealing with ISIS or dealing with various terrorist groups, the individuals in those countries affected by uh, extremism or terrorism have themselves then uh, used nonviolent approaches uh, to, to in some way chi- challenge the most extreme yes. terrorists. Yes. That's, I mean, that's part of the, I think part of the power of, of nonviolence. Um, it's not, um, a uh, distinctly Christian um, thing. There are people of other faiths and people who maybe would profess no particular faith at all who can engage in, in nonviolent struggle um, and can use that to bring about political and, and social change. And there's been, there have been numbers of stories of people who have, who have done that. And so that's, um, that's encouraging. Uh, it's helpful to see um, what has worked in the past because what is possible, what's been done, you know, is possible. And so it's good to think about how we can replicate some of those things as well. So I think, I do think the church um, can learn from those examples uh, and certainly can be engaged in uh, nonviolent struggle, um, even with, you know, sort of with people who may not um, have some of the same faith convictions that they do. And I think one of the stories you told was a woman that went out. She was outside ISIS headquarters. I can't. Was it in? Uh, I think uh, it was Iraq. Iraq. Yes. And and uh, she pro- protests and other people join her, and eventually even ISIS gives in and releases uh, several political detainees. Yes, I think. I mean, I think the stories like those are important because 
there are times when we begin to think of a certain group, whether it's ISIS or whether it's the you know perennial question, what would you do about Hitler? We think that there are certain places where nonviolence just can't work because we think these regimes or oppressors or terrorists simply have no regard for life and they'll just they would just kind of wipe out any type of protest that that might happen and that that simply is not not the case there are there are numbers of stories um, that suggest just the opposite and, and part of the reason for that is that people in power um, have to have to be careful about using too much oppressive force because that can actually backfire that can turn others against them uh, can even turn some of their own members against them um, if the violence that they use is is seen as you know too extreme or or too problematic. So so those stories are helpful reminders that protest is possible. There are ways to bring about change even in some of these very difficult settings. Say, so, uh, give us the statistics of the nonviolent revolutions that occurred in the 20th century. Um, I'm not sure I have that number right at the top of my head. I one one thing that I could speak to that I found interesting. Um, there was a study that was done by um, Erica Chenoweth, if I'm saying her name correctly, and Maria Stefan. They wrote a book, "Why Civil Resistance Works," and what they did was they looked at both violent and nonviolent campaigns um, from 1900 to 2006, so roughly a hundred year period. They looked at 323 different um, campaigns, and and their results. And this is pretty much directly how they state it. They say that they found that the nonviolent campaigns uh, were nearly twice as as likely to either have full or partial success than were the violent campaigns. So again, a very careful study of you know, a lot of different violent campaigns and nonviolent campaigns. It demonstrated the effectiveness of nonviolence, which is is impressive and encouraging. I and I may not be remembering the number right e either, but I thought you said that there had been something something like thirty uh, nonviolent revolutions in the just in the twentieth century alone. That were there have successful. been a lot. Again, I don't. I'm sorry, I can't recall the exact number, but but there are certainly a lot. Um, there are again a number of books that um, are written that that recount these that are that tell the stories that are again very inspiring to to read. And and I guess where all this and and you know it's easy for uh, some of us thinking of me uh, that it may be easy for us to theoretically outline you know strategies of nonviolence a theology of nonviolence, um, but you you discuss then a, a kind of developing a nonviolent mindset. Uh, Tell us how you do that. I, I, I need to work on that. Yes, I, I think it's really important how we sort of how we see other people um, in a general sense. So I talk about um, the importance of seeing people made in God's image um, and how that helps us to treat other people um, with a certain sense of uh, respect um, or even uh, this is Richard Mao's word of uh, reverence, which I think is helpful. I think we want to really work hard at you know, humanizing people rather than demonizing people, which is what we tend to do with folks who are different from us in, in a variety of ways. Um, I talk about encouraging us to, you know, to get to know people, especially people who are different from us or other than us to, you know, sit down and have a meal with them or have a conversation with them. Um, those kinds of things help us begin to frame the way um, that we look at other people. So rather than looking through eyes of, of, of fear or even eyes of, of hate, we begin to have eyes of understanding and 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 tolerance, and we um, and that impacts, I think, how we then react uh, to those around us. And I think in the book you mentioned in uh, Germany that uh, the Jews then were referred to that, that they called them lice that need to be There's killed. A, yeah, it's, it's typical in whether it's the Nazi regime, whether it's Rwandan genocide. I think they use the word cockroaches there. I mean, to we to it, to kill someone is much easier once you've dehumanized them and they're not seen as a full human being, but there's something less than that. You know, an insect that needs to be to be squashed. Um, so that that's very. I think that kind of mindset is very dangerous and we need to really be careful to to not do that and you need to try to to um to get into the to the um 
to the mindset of others to try to understand where they're coming from and why they think the way they think, um, to get to know them, to realize that they have families just like we do, that they have hopes and dreams just like we do, they have fears just like we do, they have needs just like we do, um, and that can begin to bridge some of the gap that we might feel toward others. And in the in the book, one of the, the striking stories that you tell that is not a happy ending, uh, tell the story between, you know, the encounter between the American and German soldier who discover that they're both Christian. Right. It's a story that um that uh, Tony Campolo tells, um, and he he heard the story from Philip Yancey. Um, as the story goes, I guess there was, I think it was the Battle of the Bulge, and there was an um, American soldier whose job was to um, go back out in the battlefield, um, and I think his job was to to eliminate those who were um, who may have you know survived the battle, if I'm remembering correctly. And he comes comes upon one German soldier who is just um, completely, um, I think Tony's word here is, or Philip's word would be dissipated, just kind of really wiped out. And, and so they, they begin to have a little oh, conversation. No. The guy says, wait, wait, don't kill me. And um, I think he wants to, wants to pray first. And then they discover through a conversation that well, they're, they're both Christians. I think they share some, you know, pictures of their family and they, they talk a little bit together. And, and uh, you know, the, the, someone who hears a story like that would expect, you to think, well, then this American soldier is not going to kill him because they realize that they're they're brothers in Christ and they share this this bond. But it and and, and so you know, Tony's asking Philippians, say, well, what's you know, or what does this guy, you know, what does this guy do? Um, how does he respond? And um, he says the American takes his gun and, and blows his brains out. Um, and Tony's point is that's that's what that's what nationalism Terrible. will do to you. It makes your nationalistic values more important than kingdom values. Um, and it shows really where your where your allegiance is. So it's a, I mean, it's a terrible, it's a tragic story, but it's one that I'm afraid is repeated too many times times over. Yeah, even uh, C.S. Lewis tells a story, or he he says, you know, he can imagine that very scene in which you know two soldiers, maybe they're both Christians, engage in combat and even kill each other and find themselves tumbling into heaven, you know, laughing at the circumstance what's wrong with that understanding yeah it's again we i mean our our ultimate allegiance um, is to be to god and if our ultimate allegiance is to god then we have we are part of you know the the, the way the scriptures talk about it we're part of the body of christ um, and to you know, just think about harming part of your own body would be obviously not a good thing to do and that's that's exactly what's happened through many through many wars, whether it's uh, civil war here in America, um, whether it's you know World War II, or we have Christians killing Christians. So I think it was John Stoner and, and I think perhaps another person that came up with what they called a modest proposal for peace that you know Christians stop killing Christians. Um, and you know it's modest because it's just referring to Christians, but certainly we should extend that to everyone. But yes, it seems I mean it's terribly uh, it's terribly problem- problematic when. We who are to care for one another are doing just the opposite. So that there is a kind of Gnostic Christianity that in some way uh, takes the, the, you know, not only on this issue, but it seems like the whole teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain, that in some way this reality is set aside for the notion that souls going to heaven is what this is really about. And of course, what you're describing is, well, no, the the kingdom that Christ is establishing, the church that is participating in that, is not for another place. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it's not simply a futuristic thing or a disembodied uh, soulish kingdom, but it's uh, a, a real world earthly, you know, New Jerusalem come to earth sort of yes, thing. Yes, I do think with Jesus, I mean, inaugurating the kingdom, that's what Jesus was trying to show people that the kingdom is, it's, 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 it's right here in your, in your midst. Um, it's, it's right here where people are being healed. It's right here where 
people are being fed. It's you know it's that that is that is kingdom that is the kingdom here here on earth, and you know it, it that's what's spreading um, here and now, which is which is good news um, because we can we can experience it um, on this side, and that's and that's that's what God wants for us. In your book, and, and part of the beauty of your book is it that it is just you could almost take this as a manual and say, okay, uh, here is here is the way to live out uh, 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 peaceable and nonviolent. But one of the the practical areas that you talk about is in the home, is in between married couples, the way that we parent, uh, you know, that we're parents. Can you describe then the difference that nonviolence or peaceableness? Sure. I mean, just for myself, I I I'm married. I have three children, um, ages twelve, ten, and four. Um, when we you know, first had you know, our first child, we my wife and I made a commitment pretty early on. I think I can't remember exactly when it was, but that um, we would not we would not hit our children. Uh, that that spanking was not something that we wanted to use as a means of discipline. Um, because we see that as a, as an act of violence, um, so I mean, that'd be one way. We so we've had to think about other creative ways to you know discipline our our children and to and to guide our children. Um, I think also a really big problem that is not talked a lot about much in the church is uh, the whole issue of domestic violence. And again, the rates of domestic violence within the walls of the church and outside the walls of the church seem about the same. Um, so it certainly is a real problem there. Um, but as a you know, as a person can committed to to nonviolence, that's certainly not uh, the way that I would uh, treat my spouse or that my spouse would treat me. So as Christians who are committed to following Jesus, you know, obviously all married couples have have their differences, but we find ways to to talk those out that are that are not harmful, and we certainly don't engage in patterns patterns of you know domination that are so typical of um, of uh, domestic violence kind of relationships. So that uh, that part of this then is a an understanding of male female uh, roles in which, in other words, uh, notions of simply complementarianism uh, that it seems to be a kind of screen for uh, male dominance. You're suggesting that's uh, that's well. I, I'm in a, I guess, what I would call a, a fiercely committed egalitarian relationship. So we we work real, we work really hard to um, <laughs> to try to be equals together, and I think that is very very important. Um, I I I mean, patriarchy has been a very uh, very difficult challenge for um, the church um, for many years, and continues to express itself. Um, you know, in church structures, in terms of leadership, but also in the home as well. Um, and again, I think the call of Jesus is is a call to to service. And um, in fact, in in our own in our own wedding ceremony, when I got married, we we washed each other's feet because we wanted that to be a symbol of the kind of relationship that we were entering into each other, entering into that we we were not one of us was not going to dominate the other, but we are. Uh, mutually submissive to one another, we serve one another, and we've we've worked we've worked hard to try to try to live that out. Uh, you even I just did a wedding ceremony yesterday, and I just read your little section of the 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 phrase you had used, and I have to admit I <laughs> stole fine. your phrase. You can have it. <laughs> uh, that uh, that you know in in uh, doing the ceremony that. Um, we don't wait for the other to to take out the garbage or clean the toilet. That that uh, there is not this notion that of, uh, of of you know the other responsibility, but a true you know uh, servant kind of attitude. Okay, oh, so I thought that was a lovely illustration. Uh, let me let me ask you one more thing here, and and a lot of your book uh, is just uh, very practical. And uh, can you give us some practical practical suggestions about concrete steps the church can take uh, for to help its to help us reject violence? Yes, I I again like you mentioned early on, I I try to emphasize stories in the in the book, and so I think one of the best things the church can do is to is simply tell some stories. Um, 
in many church traditions, there are great stories that they have of people in their own tradition who have worked for peace and justice and have been nonviolent. And so those could be um, elevated. If tr church traditions don't have those particular stories as part of their own tradition, they can sort of look at others. But to tell the stories of what does it look like to live out um, a commitment to, to nonviolence, those, those can be really powerful. Stories tend to stick with us um, in ways sometimes that other things don't. Um, I also think that um, it, it would be helpful for churches to try to think about um, ways they could sort of infuse their worship services with um, nonviolent themes and ideas, um, and you know, emphasis on um, compassion, emphasis on hospitality, emphasis on, on love. Uh, these things are, are really important. So how does that come through in the prayers, and how does that come through in the songs? What kind of sermons are being preached? So those are all ways that could be helpful mm -hmm. as well. Um, and I think... Um, it's really important, maybe, maybe this is more of a don't, but I think it's really important for churches to be very careful um, you know, not to mix uh, God and country um, in the church because that um, often tends to uh, then give off the message that, well, you know, sometimes violence is okay and uh, because that's what our country does, it's okay for us to just go along with that. So I think the church has to be very careful um, to keep those kinds of things separate and just to, to have a very clear uh, message that, Jesus calls us to walk um, nonviolently in all of our relationships. Eric, this has uh, been a wonderful conversation, but in, in the final thing, tell us how we can uh, uh, order copies of your book. Uh, uh, either uh, the it is Disarming the Church, and it's available That's right correct. on so it can Amazon. Be, it can be bought on Amazon.com. Uh, it's there. Um, it can also be purchased directly from um, the publisher Wiffenstock. It's W-I-P-F and stock. And um, they have currently um, have a, um, a discount going on that if you do buy one directly from the publisher and you put um, C-O-N-F, I think, in the code line, it will give you the book at 40% off. So that's a, a good deal. And I, I just uh, am uh, finishing this. It, it is just uh, you've undertaken a, a huge task here of laying out almost. A, a, it's probably the most comprehensive short book. It's not a hard read. You can sit down and read it in a in a day. Uh, that just outlines uh, the 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 necessity of peaceableness and just the prag pragmatics of Thank putting you. it into place. So uh, I. It is just, uh, I thank you for, for uh, putting this together. And uh, so I've, I've, Eric and I are in discussion, and I'm, I'm hoping that we can hear more from him. Hopefully that uh, maybe some, uh, he'll write some blogs for us. But uh, uh, the, the work that you're doing just so well aligns with, with uh, our work here at Forging Plows here. So we, we sure appreciate your, your willingness to. Thank you. I, I appreciate the work you're doing. I'm, I'm certainly glad for the opportunity to, to get the message out.